All right. <clears throat> Uh, well, as they receive the offering, uh, like Benjamin said, my name is Josh Gardner. Um, I'm the minister of students here at Flourishing Grace. Been here for a little bit and just so excited to be uh, with you guys this morning, continuing our series in Acts. So if you want to grab your Bible out, if you want to grab your Bible out, um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning. Acts chapter 15 is on uh, page 1023 on those Bibles right in front of you. Um, and and <clears throat> we've been talking through this theme uh, throughout this entire series, right? So we've been talking through how through the book of Acts, we see this theme of opposition and advance, opposition and advance. And what we mean by that is an opposition to the gospel. Um, we see that obviously the book of Acts is right after Jesus has, has died. He's resurrected from the dead and he's given the spirit, he, he's ascended into heaven and the spirit has come upon the saints and they're, they're preaching the gospel, to so all these different people, and, and there's so many beautiful verses where it says in thousands come to know Christ, that people that would have never heard it before are hearing the gospel spread all throughout. But then we see opposition to the gospel. Um, we see opposition from outside the church, meaning governments and, and through persecutions and through other uh, people groups, per, uh, mostly through persecution and um, persecuting the church and seeing actually this spread out of the church even, or having to go underground in some places. Um, but then we also see an op opposition from the inside of the church as well, um, where we see um, people rising up within the church that have a wrong view of what Jesus said and, and who, are, who are preaching that, and uh, are, are just saying different things that aren't, that don't align with the gospel. And every time, every time we see an advance from these oppositions, we see that God addresses those oppositions by his spirit through his people and remind them of the gospel, remind them of what Jesus says, and then we always see an explosion of people coming to know Christ after. This is how our God operates. The opposition isn't, isn't a surprise to him. It's actually woven into his plan. Um, and so, so we're going to be talking through another opposition this morning in, in Acts chapter 15. And, and this opposition, I think, uh, is, is not just relevant to the first century. Um, it's not just relevant to the first century. We actually see this opposition happen throughout church history. If you read any of church history, um, the beginning few centuries, you see them wrestling with this opposition to the gospel. And then, and then uh, during the Reformation, the Reformation is almost built on this specific opposition to the gospel. And then finally, even today, in our, in our nation, in our city, uh, in, our, in our world, in, in our neighborhoods, and if we're honest with ourselves, um, maybe even in, in your and my heart, we have this opposition to the gospel, this wrong, false way of thinking about the gospel that we see here. Um, and so they combat it. Um, God combats this opposition, and, and we see advance. So what I want to do this morning is, is if you aren't there, flip open to Acts chapter 15. I and mean, I want to read verse 1 through 12 for us. And, and I really want you to focus on the end. We're going to be really diving into God answering the opposition in, in verses 10 through 12. All right? So let me read for us. It says, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had some, no small dissension and debate with them. Um, debate with them. 
Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to be circumcised, uh, and, I'm sorry, to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them uh, and among the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. So we see this morning that we see the opposition is really clear. It's an opposition that's actually, uh, it's an opposition to the core of the gospel. That, so there, there are these, these Jews, if you know, the, the Jews were the chosen people, of, uh, chosen people, Israel, chosen by God in the Old Testament. We see that there is chosen people, that they're given a law, that they're, that they're set apart, that they're set apart from the rest of the nations to be an example to the nations. And, and, and they're promised throughout the Old Testament, if you read, you see that they're promised that there's going to be this Messiah that comes. He's going to set everything right. He said everything right. And so a lot of the first Christians were actually out of Israel because they already had in their culture as they grew up, they knew that there were these, these prophecies of Messiah and they didn't know exactly what, how it was going to be, but some of them opposed, uh, opposed Jesus. We see this in some of the Pharisees opposed Jesus in the Gospels. But then we also see that some of those, even some of the Pharisees we see here, become believers in Christ, that they go, yes, this is the Messiah that was promised. Yes, oh my goodness, when he, when he died on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. He died for my sins, and I, be, I believe in him, and I've received the Holy Spirit. And they believe that, but then, they, but then because of their culture and because of what they grew up on, they say, but we also need to do this and this and this, and we need to follow the law. We need to be circumcised. We need to do all of the, um, all the ritual uh, things we need to uh, be clean, be ritually clean. We need to follow the dietary laws. We need to do all these things. And if we're doing that and we believe in Jesus, then we will be saved. And, and they were even, you can see here, they were even putting that on other people. So they were putting that on the Gentiles. The Gentiles, this other group of people, anyone that's not a, a, a Jew, a Gentile who has no idea. I mean, maybe they knew about the laws, but a lot of them, like, didn't follow them. There were 600 plus laws, so they obviously didn't know all of them. 
Um, and now the Jews are saying, okay, you believe in Jesus, but you also need to do this and this and this, and then you'll be clean before God. Um, and so we see this, this opposition, um, this opposition because they're adding to Christ. They're saying, yes, it's Jesus, but it also takes your works. It also takes your works for salvation, that you cannot be saved unless you do these things, unless you do these things. And, and see, here today, the reason why it's relevant today um, is because, just like Benjamin was talking about during communion, we do this, that we act as if we have a part to play in our salvation, we act as if we can, we can do even some of it. No, most of you, I'm sure, don't say, oh yeah, um, you need to follow the dietary laws and then that'll be part of it. And, or you have to be circumcised or whatever. No, that's probably not what you say. Um, but we do, especially if you grew up in, uh, like for me, I grew up in a, a very moral household, which is a good thing. But sometimes we take that and we act as if we have part, we have a part to play that's good in our salvation. But the problem with this, and unfortunately we see quickly in the Bible, that when we do this, when we add to the gospel, when we add to Jesus, um, that we actually believe in a false gospel. Because if we add to it, then it's not actually good news anymore. It's not actually good news, it's actually something that we are trying to do um, to get right before God. So I just want to talk through three things that we see clearly in the passage here. So when we, when we add to Jesus for salvation, we act as if our works take part in saving us. We act as if our works take part in saving us. So we believe that somehow that we can tip the scales of our sin um, to be good enough before God. So yeah, you can think of a scale where every time you do something bad, the weight of that scale goes down on the bad side, right? And so you just keep stacking your weights there. But then you're like, but, you know, I gave to the poor and I, I uh, took my time to help out at church and I read my Bible and I'm, I'm praying. And, and so in your head, you're like, oh, so I'm actually, I'm actually putting more weight on the good side. And as long as maybe I can, I can just, as long as I can just outweigh the bad, with the good, then maybe God will look at me, um, God will look at me rightly, he will look at me and be, and, and with approval of me. Maybe that's what you think in your head. Um, but we see here clearly, if you look at verse 10, look at verse 10 with me. Peter answers them, the Spirit, he answers them and he says, um, he says, and now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter reminds them. He goes, do you not remember? You spent your entire life, probably in the synagogue, if, if you're a Jew, you spent your entire life like someone reading the scriptures to you, memorizing them. Do you, do you not remember our history? <laughs> that that in the Old Testament, we see that God covenants with this people, Israel. He calls him, they calls, he calls them his own possession. And he says, you, I will be your God. And he gives them the law and he says, so now that you are my people, follow my law so you're set apart for the nation. But what do we see over and over and over again? That they, they can't do it. 
Literally, directly after he's given the law, they sin against God. They lust after things. They, um, they put themselves in the place of God. They put idols up and they bow down and worship them over and over again. And it's, it's really interesting. You see this pattern throughout Scripture. So, so in, in students here at Flourishing Grace and, and in preteen and in kids, we, we go through this thing called the Gospel Project. It's like a, it's a Bible study that we go through on Sunday mornings uh, with your students, preteens, and, and kids. And and, and, and it's amazing. It goes through the whole Bible in three years, right? And so we've been working through the Old Testament. Um, and a couple months ago, uh, as we're working through, it was either, I can't remember if it was Exodus or, or Deuteronomy. Um, uh, I, I, it was somewhere in there. Uh, one of my students looked at me and was like, after we had read through it and we were talking about it, she was like, Josh, we've read this before. <laughs> like, we've read this before. And she, she wasn't talking about these people. We were actually reading texts that were years apart from each other, but she was talking about this pattern. She was like, they keep doing this. Like, Israel keeps being dumb and sinning against God, and, and then turmoil happens, and they have to repent, and then God, God restores them, and this, I mean, it's just over and over. It beats you over the head if you read the Old Testament. It beats you over the head that Israel could not hold up the law could not hold up the law. They kept sinning against God. And here's the thing. Do you you not feel this way too? Do you not find yourself sinning repeatedly against God? Do you not find yourself angry? Do you not find yourself lustful? Do you not find yourself putting yourself in God's place? Do you not find yourself worshiping things over God? You. We cannot, we cannot hold up the law. We cannot be good enough. And this is the problem. We don't have the ability in ourselves to do this. We don't have the ability in ourselves to hold up God's standard, the law. And really, what we see later, Paul talks about, he actually calls the law the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of condemnation. Sounds scary. It, it is. <laughs> it's Scary, because he says the law was not meant to save us. The law was actually meant to show us the evil that we are, the person that we are that's not good. That, and it actually was meant to show us that we are so separated from God. God is holy and perfect and righteous and just, and he does all things right. He's never done anything wrong. He has no blemish or spot. He's bright, and we are dirty and flawed and cannot even get close to God. Not only that, but God is completely other than us. He's a different substance than us. He is God. We are creation, fallen, broken creation. So it's actually meant to show a kind of depressing point, right? That we are broken and lost and we can't we can't get close to God on our own merit. Even in Isaiah, Isaiah 64, um, says that all we, um, all, I'm sorry, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or some, some texts even say filthy rag. That even our good works before a holy and righteous God 
are filthy rags. <laughs> that they are meant to be a filthy rag. What do you do with it? You throw it away, <laughs> right? A tissue, you blow your nose into it, disgusting, and then you throw it away. You don't keep it and frame it up somewhere. You throw it away. So even if you spend your entire life, even if you resolve today, I'm going to be good and I'm only going to do works and I'm not going to sin, which isn't going to happen, and you know that. If, you, if you're honest with yourself, you know that. But even if you resolve to and even if you could, the Bible says that when you stack those things up on that scale, that all those bad things, you're not stacking weight on the good side. You're actually just stacking dirty, filthy rags that weigh absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And, in, and Paul in Galatians 3, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse, are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So all that rely on the law. So if you rely on your good works, if you rely on keeping the law before God, then at the end of your life, when you stand before God and you go, God, look what I've done. He's going to show you the law. He's going to show you everything you didn't do. And the weight of it is going to crush you. It's going to crush you if you try to put yourself in comparison to the law. We can't hold it up. And even farther in Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. We cannot stand before the perfection of God. You fall short. No matter how much good you do, you fall short. Now, I, I want to make a disclaimer here because I'm, I'm just like bashing good works completely, right? Um, and really, I, I want to make a disclaimer because the good works... Good works doesn't mean nothing in a Christian's life. It's actually a huge part of a Christian's life. But here's where they got it wrong, the order. So they said, good works in Jesus equals salvation. That good works in Jesus become, come before salvation. That if you do good works, then you will receive salvation. And what we see clearly in Scripture is it's the other way around, that Jesus, by, by grace through faith, you have been saved. You've been saved and now that you are saved, now that you've received salvation through Christ alone, not because of your own works, then we see the fruit of that, which is good works in that. So after salvation. So I want you to sit here. We obviously, like, there's so many scriptures, and that can be like a whole separate sermon about the good works of a Christian. But know this, it's not for salvation. It's something that happens after, and it actually happens because of the gospel and because of God transforming your life, not because of anything you do, even in that. So when we add to Jesus for salvation, we act as if our works take part in saving us. The second thing is when we add to Jesus, it's not, the real, it's not real grace and it's not the real Jesus that we're following. It's not the real Jesus that we're following. If you look at verse 11 with me, it says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will just as they will. So Peter points out that it's through the grace of Jesus alone, nothing else, that will save us. Save us, save others by the grace of Jesus alone. In, in Ephesians 2, we see, and, and, and uh, Benger read this earlier, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Here's the deal, when we add to Jesus, we say, yes, Jesus' grace 
we need that, but we also need this and this and this, you're, you're actually not receiving any grace in that because grace and a gift are synonymous with each other. Grace is freely given to those who believe. You don't, if you earned it, then it wouldn't be called grace, it would be called what you're owed. It'd be called your wages, right? So, so think of it this way, if, if you work a job and you get paid 10 bucks an hour and you work 15 hours in the week, how much do you get paid? Thank you, $150, yeah. Um, I'll give you $150 after this, Brett. So you get $150 for your 15 hours of work. Now you would never say, you would never say when you receive that check from your boss, you never say, man, thank you for the grace of giving me the money that I have earned to get. Like that's a ridiculous statement. That's a, that's a ridiculous statement and that's exactly what we do though is we act as if the grace is something that we can earn by our works. But in reality, it's not. It's clear. Read the scriptures. It's clear that it's a gift given to you. And we saw earlier that when you do try to do good works and you try to earn it, what we see is it ends up in dirty rags and in death. And then we also see that when we add to Jesus, it's not the real Jesus. Right? It's not the real Jesus. So imagine this. Again, another ridiculous illustration. But imagine this. There's, um, you're at the pool. There's a kid drowning in the pool. And the lifeguard heroically dumps in the pool, jumps, jumps in the pool and picks the kid up and kind of like is kind of trying to save him, but he's got his head over the water and it's just enough so that they can talk. And he goes, okay, now kid, here's the thing. Um, I can, ha have you gone through your three hours of training, uh, of swim training? Because if you haven't, then I don't have the ability to save you. So here's what we're going to do for the next three hours. While you're drowning, I'm going to teach you how to swim. And then after that, we'll be able, I'll be able to pull you out. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. If that lifeguard was a real person, maybe it's happened. Uh, <laughs> I hope not. Gosh. They would be fired, or they should be right? Because they're not a lifeguard. They're not guarding anybody's life at that point. Um, that kid, three hours of, of training while you're drowning doesn't really work. Doesn't really work. And, but I know that's a ridiculous statement, but think about it. That's what we do, is we call Jesus something that he's not, which means we're following a false Jesus. We call Jesus not good enough, not enough to actually do what he came to do, which is save us. But when we say it takes us as well as him, then what was the point? What was the point in Jesus at all? So if we look in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, for, uh, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what God did, that he took him who knew no sin, Jesus, perfect and blameless, and he, he switched us with him. He put him in our place and us in his place. That God, Jesus Christ, came down 100% God, 100% man, and lived a life that you and I cannot live at all. And then he died the death that you and I deserve. The Bible's clear that the wages of our sin, the payment for our sin is death. And Jesus took that death on the cross, and God bound up your sin and my sin. He bound up the, the wrath that we deserve for that sin, and he put it in a moment, and he placed it on Jesus Christ for you and for me. So Jesus took our place, 
And then it even says that we receive Christ's righteousness, meaning Christ, he's God. He's God, he stands right and pure before God, no blemish, before God the Father, no blemish. And we actually receive that righteousness through Jesus. The, uh, uh, one of the great reformers and, and great theologians, Martin Luther, actually says it this way, that, that it's an alien righteousness. And, and, and I think I said this earlier, but the Re- Reformation was all about this, works versus the gospel. And, and Martin Luther struggled with this, struggled with this, and he came to the conclusion that like, the scriptures are clear that righteousness is, is alien of us. That it's not something that's within us that we can, we can dig deep down and pull out of ourselves. And that's what our culture wants to say, right? Whether you're trying to gain or uh, climb up the ladder at work or whether you're trying to do better in sports or whether you're trying to be a rock star or whatever it is or whether you're trying to be YouTube famous, people are like, oh, just reach deep inside and the star is in you and the, the, the person you want to be is inside of you and reach that, pull that out and, and lift them up and you will be them. But the Bible is clear that this righteousness is not from us, it's from God. It's outside of us and it's given to us freely, freely through Christ. So when we add to Jesus, we're not, um, when we add to Jesus, it's not the real grace and it's not the real Jesus. And then finally, when we add to Jesus, it's, it's, it means that we live a life constantly trying to prove that we were worth saving. And, and really, we see that this is what was happening here. Um, we see that this is what was happening here. You have, you have um, these, these former Pharisees come up and, and say, no, 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 it, it requires the works of the law as well as Jesus to be saved. It requires the works of the law as well as Jesus to be saved. And they're, they're adding to him. Um, and, and sometimes, and really, I'm speaking to the Christian in the room, just like those people, they actually believe. There's no, nowhere in Scripture that, like here that we see any other reason to believe that they were real believers. They believed in Jesus. But then they also believed that their works did something before God, that God looked at them a different way because of their works. Um, at, when I was in college, um, we had a college ministry, about 500 people or so. So we had like 50 to 70 uh, college leaders, right? So college students who are leaders. And, and uh, my college pastor every year would interview all of them, um, which is a crazy uh, system. But anyway, so he interviewed all of them. And he, um, I remember the year I applied to be a, a, a leader, he, I was the first, I was the first interview. First interview, nerve wracking. And he sits down and he starts just asking questions. So he asks, what's the gospel? And I answer that. He asks, what's, uh, <clears throat> give me your testimony. What's like, tell me about what God has done in your life. Tell me about what he's doing now. Let's, let's hear just God's story in your life. And he asked me a couple other questions. But then the last question he asked was, if God was sitting right here, and he points, like right next to me, God was sitting right there, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And, and it's funny because, or it was funny to me because I laughed. And I said, well, Austin, I just told you. Like, I just told you the gospel. I just told you that Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead and I have nothing good in me and I believed in him and that's all I have. I can't stack myself up before God and say, look at me, but I said, look at Jesus. And, and it was funny because after I said that, he was like, he, he kind of chuckled as well and he was like, well, 
And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, the reason why I ask that is because there are people that come in here that when I ask them what is the gospel, they, they give it to them perfectly. And they really believe it. It's not scripted. They, they believe the gospel. They, they have a testimony of what Christ has done in their lives to save them and how the Holy Spirit has moved in their life. But then when they ask, but then when, when he asks, if God was sitting right here looking at you and asks, why should I let you into heaven? They say, well, yeah, Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead and, and I believe in him for salvation. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person and I'm trying to go to church more and I'm, I'm trying to pray. And he would stop them. He'd say, stop. All of that and after the gospel means nothing to God. That your standing doesn't change because of all of that. That's not what saves you. But those people were coming, they were, they were believers in Christ, and they, but they were coming before God insecure and, and trying to make up for that insecurity with their own works, with their own works. And so I think for you, if you're a believer in the room, you, would, you probably wouldn't say all of those extra things get me salvation. And that's not what they were saying either. But they functionally were living that way. Like when they sinned against God, they were like, oh man, I need to, once I read my Bible maybe five times and once I kind of like do some good works or maybe if I like give like more than the tithe and I do that stuff, then God will look at me rightly. But we see clearly in scripture that that's not how it works. That's not how God operates. That he freely gives you a gift of grace through Jesus. And that now, as a Christian, when you sin against God, yes, you repent, but it's you repent of your sin and you come before God. And you trust in Jesus knowing that he's already saved you from it. That you don't need to come scared in fear, but you come with a repentant and heavy heart. Come with a heavy heart. We see that God is not a God who is waiting to be appeased by us. He's a God who wants to be pleased by us. He's not waiting to be appeased. He wants to be pleased. Those are two different things, and sometimes we come thinking we have to do these things for our status before God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace um, to help in a time of need. Let's draw near to the throne of grace, not near to the throne of condemnation. You can draw near to the throne of grace when it's Jesus alone who has saved you. If you try to stack up your own merit, you're going to draw near to the throne of condemnation. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to have free access to him. The gospel puts on you an alien righteousness and it even puts on you a um, that God calls you an heir, his heir, his son, his daughter, and he looks on you as though you lived the life that Christ lived. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He does all this through Christ. So we have to constantly preach this to ourselves. We have to preach the gospel, this true right gospel, this good news of what Christ has done for us over and over again because the world tells us differently. Even from a young age, we're told that we need to work hard to get A's, which I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm not saying working hard in school is bad. And, and then in 
and even in a corporate world that we need to work harder to get up to this position that we want to get to. Again, all that's not necessarily bad, but, but it trains our mind to think, oh, God operates the same way when in reality he doesn't at all. He doesn't at all. So we have to preach this to ourselves, and that's why we meet every week. That's why we do communion today. We're a reminder of what Christ has done for us. That's why we have the Bible reading plan. We want you to be reading and praying every day to see the gospel and preach it to yourself, knowing that the world wants to teach you the opposite and is going to preach at you the opposite of what God has said about you. What God has said about you. So preach this to yourself. Preach this to yourself every day. If you're a believer in the room, and I, I would just pray that this week you would just focus on that, preaching the gospel to yourself, that the gospel is actually more important to you as a Christian than it is to anybody who doesn't believe it. Over and over again, preaching it to yourself. And then maybe you're in the room and you're, you're not a Christian. Maybe um, you even grew up in a moral household. Maybe you um, see yourself as being able to stack up your good works before God, and, and you just hope, you just hope that one day God would be pleased with your work. Here's what I want to say to you is look to Jesus because you know, we see clearly in Scripture that our work is not enough, that we, we, it's, it's nothing. It's dirty rags before a holy and righteous God. And he's so loving that he himself did everything so that you could stand right before him. It's not by your own works. It's not by your own merit by the merit of Jesus, that you can come before him. So let me, let me pray for us to that end, that we would consider Jesus, that we would hold him high, that we would not trust in anything but him alone. God, thank you for your love for us in Christ, that, that you would come and do everything we need to be saved. God, thank you for passages like this where we see clearly this division among the church and how they deal with it by looking at the scripture, looking at what Christ says, holding up Christ above everything else. God, and so I pray this morning for flourishing grace. I pray that, that this week we would go and consider Jesus above all else we'd look to him for salvation and know that we would find security and rest in Christ alone, not in our own works. God, we love you. We thank you.